0: Hey, everybody. Before we hop into this episode of The Growth Show, I just want to give you the heads up on a special offer for Growth Show listeners. Our annual inbound event is coming up in September. And if you've never been, you're missing out. Every year, we host thousands of marketing and sales professionals from almost every industry imaginable and from all corners of the globe right here in Boston. Last year, we had over 10,000 attendees. The year before that, there was around 5,000. We're expecting an even bigger crowd than 10,000 this year. People like Ariana Huffington, Nate Silver, Malcolm Gladwell, Martha Stewart have all spoken in the past. This year, we've already lined up Seth Godin, Daniel Pink, and Brene Brown. We'd love to see you there, and we're going to be doing some podcasts live from the event. Head over to inbound.com, and when you get your ticket, you can use the promo code Show, all one word, and you can get $100 off. That's inbound.com. Use the promo code GROWTHSHOW and save $100. On this episode of The Grow Show, we talked to Kevin Mera and Brett Vankoski from the Latitude Beverage Company.
1: One of the lessons that I learned early on from, from these failures is, you know, be passionate about what you do and and you know, don't build a company for an exit. Because if you're building a company for an exit, it means you're not passionate about what you're doing. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely
2: within our control.
1: We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible.
0: You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dave Gerhardt, the producer of the podcast. I'm usually behind the scenes, uh, but Mike's out on his long overdue sabbatical, so hopefully playing some golf somewhere, so I'm going to fill in for him. I'm joined today, uh, today by Kevin Mara and Brett Vankoski from Latitude Beverage. Uh, hey, guys, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot, Dave. You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
0: Uh, so latitude beverage, you guys are probably uh, best known as the guys behind uh, ninety plus sellers wine. So um, give us some background for the people that might not be super familiar with the company. Uh, who are you guys, and what are you, what are you up to?
1: Well, we are a uh, local wine company. You know, when you think wine, you don't usually think of a company based right here in Boston. But we are what's uh, what's called a modern negotiant brand. So we are a virtual winery. We don't uh, own any vineyards. Don't. Plant any grapes. We don't own any wineries. We buy the best wine from all over the world and bring it to the consumers here all over the Northeast uh, at a great value. So, uh, and um, uh, our our brand ninety plus sellers we launched in two thousand and nine. Uh, we're now available in about thirteen states throughout the Northeast and in Chicago, and uh, it's it's been. Um, it's been well received.
0: Give us a sense of you know you don't have to really go into numbers, but um, you know how how much you guys have grown since two
1: thousand nine. Sure. So so we launched really late in two thousand and nine. Uh, we, we about probably July of two thousand and nine. Uh, we really got going probably in in the fall, and we did about fourteen thousand four hundred cases that year. Um, And if we kind of speed up into this year, 2015, we anticipate doing around 290,000 cases, Uh, you know, so, so, you know, an annual return, you know, since, and then in in 2010, which was our first full year of business, we did almost 50,000 cases, about 48,000 to be exact. So if you look at kind of a five-year kind of growth, you know, almost over 580% growth, so it's, it's, you know, we're... We've been well recognized in the New England re- region as one of the fastest-growing uh, privately held companies.
0: Yeah, so so when I was doing a little research, I read um, this. You know, I read that Kevin scours the globe for top-notch wine. That seems like a tough gig that you have on well, your end. Well,
1: let's. I'm gonna give this now to Brett because, <laughs> you know, Brett's the. Uh, so so, you know, to back up a little bit is, uh, you know, the company actually started in 2007, with a couple. Uh, um, when I when I left my uh, job with a couple of actually a, a a spirits company and, uh, launched a Mojito brand, uh, called Mo Mojito, which was a, uh, uh, a failure. Uh, we, we, we did about, uh, almost 700,000 cases, $700,000 worth of business in three months. And then Bacardi Mojito launched and I did maybe $10,000 worth of business the next six months. So, uh, um, you know, learn from a few less, uh, um, Failures and also, then I launched a brand called Coup d'État Wines. It's a kind of a wines of the world, wines from indigenous regions uh, for each individual varietal, uh, all around $9.99, $10.99, so popular priced. And that's uh, when I launched that brand, I was doing okay. That got got to about uh, maybe $1.5 to $2 million in business. Um, But I met Brett at a uh, local store called Vino to Vino Newton And, um, and I had an idea for another brand called, this was back in kind of probably middle of 08, early 08. I had an idea for 90 plus sellers. and uh, 90, the, the idea kind of came about because, I don't know if you remember back in 2008 what was going on with our economy, but we were going through the uh, financial collapse and you know, the start of a recession. And, yeah, you stole, uh, you a, lot stole a lot of my
0: questions. I was going to say, hey, you, know, you picked, picked a, a tough time to launch a business, so I'm happy to, you know, happy to hear that story.
1: Yeah, I know, it's funny. I always say when I'm talking to people about the company is, uh, you know, I felt pretty good in 2007 before I, when I first, uh, actually, the um, today is the date that I started the business. Uh, the Incorporated Latitude Beverage Company, today, 2007.
0: Hey, there you go. Yeah. That was a good little anniversary.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was feeling pretty good in 2007. Uh, uh, I thought my 401k was never bigger. I was making good money, saving good money. Uh, you know, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first daughter and I thought, you know what, what what better time to, you know, what, what could possibly happen to our, our value of our house and my 401k and uh, what better time to, you know, leave a good stable job in healthcare and try to <laughs> try it on my own. <laughs> it didn't yeah. quite work out. But we, we turned lemons into uh, lemonade and we came up with the brand 90 plus sellers uh, because there was just a, a real oversupply of really great wine all over the world after the financial collapse because... People just weren't buying that $40, $50 wine anymore, and they were trading down. And, and uh, so those prestigious wineries around the world were looking for yeah other places to put that wine.
0: Yeah, so talk, talk about that a little bit. So, um, you know, it's an interesting business. Talk about what happens kind of behind the scenes. So you guys go out, you find these, you know, more expensive wines, you slap your tag on it, and you, you brand it as your own. So what's interesting is that, you know, you don't actually, it's not actually your wine. Um, so it must mean that you guys are really good marketers at kind of you know getting the word out there and distributing it. So I'd love to hear about that process.
2: So here's basically the process, and this is Brett. Back in the summer of 2009 when there was a recession going on, the recession made it possible for us to start this business. But what we've learned since then is systematic inefficiencies in the wine market keep it going. And so what I mean by that is in the summer of 2009, there was uh, uh, demand had dried up for expensive wine, inventories were piling up at wineries that made expensive wine, and they needed ways to sell it and sell it off fairly quickly because they didn't want to be stuck with it. But they didn't want to discount their own label and, and erode the value and equity in their, in their brands and their labels, and so that's where we came in. We, we came in, contacted wineries that, after paging through the Wine Spectator or Wine Advocate we found had a history of, of high ratings and, and accolades from wine critics and asked them if they had any inventory or wine that they would like to sell us. We thought we negotiated a fair price that enabled us to purchase the inventory from them and also and offer it as a value to consumers. So that's how 90 plus sellers originally got started. And that's the theme that continues to resonate today and on our objective today. Our job is, is simply to make high-end wines more accessible to a greater number of people by transforming oversupply at wineries into lower prices for consumers. And today, the supply and demand has come into balance more, but what we've realized is that there are inefficiencies in the marketplace which prevent wineries from selling all the wine that they make or can make. There's there's really three key points here, as, as I see it or experience it. One is, it's one thing to make really good wine, it's quite another thing to sell it. There are two different skill sets. And when people enter the wine business, they may know how to make a a great bottle of wine, but when they go to sell it and have to get wrapped up in all of what it takes to deal with the three tier system and distribution and marketing of it, it, it's quite another skill set that you need to acquire. And so that's one. Two, if you look globally now, uh, Europeans, particularly European winemakers, consumption is declining. So their home consumption is declining, so they're looking for other markets to sell their wine. And the growth markets are the US and China. And so you know, when it comes to selling wine overseas, it's a lot different than selling wine in your home market. And so that's where we have the advantage, where we can help them sell wine under our label in, in this market, yeah. and then number number three, you know, wine's a business like any other. There's cash flow issues, and so what, ha- what ends up happening is because a uh, a wine, let's say that a California Cabernet, a Napa Cabernet, will be harvested in you know 2012, and only now that winery is releasing their that vintage. So what ends up happening is they sell up, they sell off a portion of that wine early. And that's where we can help them as well as we can we can purchase that wine maybe a little earlier than when they're going to release it and and release it under our label yeah so a, i want
0: I want to go um, go deeper on one of the things that you mentioned is um, so you know you have this thing everybody a lot of people drink it a lot of people know about it a lot of people can make good wine, but not a lot of people are actually good at selling it and I kind of want to dive in and talk about that from from your perspective because you know, you think about it. You're you're not the first people to start a business around wine, and it's not really like you just launch, put up a website, and say, "Hey, our wine's cheaper. Go buy it." So, what was the process like? What do you guys? Um, what makes you guys better at selling wine? And talk about some of the tactical marketing things you did. So, hey, we got this business. We got to go out and get our first customer. Like, what
1: happened? Yeah, well, well, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, we we're bootstrappers. We're the classic bootstrappers. We started. Uh, just in Massachusetts, uh, Brett and I drive around in our trucks and then delivering it the next day. Um, and really, what happened with us is 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 the quality in the bottle. You know, we we maintain a very high quality wine in the bottle, and retailers loved it. And and and, it, and they got the story out for us. You know, they would have customers come in and say, "I'm looking for a you know $12 Melbeck," and they would say and the retailers would drive their customers to our brands because it was just a higher quality wine for the price. And then, you know, because of the fact, you know, we really didn't spend any money on marketing or, or advertising. Because of the fact we were, we were you know, being very uh, quality conscious and maintaining a high quality product, really what got us off the ground was, I think it was mi- middle of 2010, the Boston Globe did a um, kind of a report on us Uh uh, a reporter named Jen Abelson, I believe, who, who also did the uh, report on the seafood uh, um, scandal here in Massachusetts last year. Uh, well, she she called us and, and said that they're going to do a, uh, the Boston Globe was going to do a, a report on us and have five sommeliers taste uh, blind our wine against other ninety rated wines up to double the price. And uh, we were nervous. And she said she was going to do the report with or without our participation, we decided to participate. We couldn't provide samples. She bought the samples in the stores herself. And she tasted our wine, our $25 Barolo against a $75 Barolo, and the Somalis picked ours. Wow. Uh, as, and so that kind of really springboarded our brand and, and gave us some um, uh, you know, major growth opportunities all throughout the Northeast and nationally. You know, it, it then got rerun by CNN, CNBC, Time Magazine. Um, and it was a real validation of what we were doing. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's all about the last lot we sold. It's, it's, you know, we're building a franchise here and we're building a franchise of trust and it's about consumers, uh, trusting what we're putting on that, in that bottle. And there's a bit of a leap of faith cause they don't know what the source label is. But, uh, as long as we keep providing them a higher quality wine than the price on the, on the label, they're, they're going to be happy.
2: You know, one thing that I think is important, with respect to how we presented our wines is that for many people buying wine is a stressful process and so if we can curate the globe selecting wines that we think are of high quality and then pricing them very competitively against their the next best thing we're gonna do okay we're gonna develop a good reputation if we can make it easier and less stressful uh, for the person who walks in the store that wants to buy a pre a a more premium wine not the cheapest wine we're not the cheapest wine but a, a premium wine in the $10 to $15 price point mostly that they're going to like and chances are that their friends will like it too, well, we're going to have customers hopefully coming back for more after that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because uh, we're, we're, a, we're a software company. We talk to a lot of execs from software companies on the show. And you know the, the companies that seem to have really grown fast and are winning are the ones that have this great customer experience and do a lot of you know education and thought leadership um, in their space. And it seems like that's what's, you know, kind of a, something that you guys are owning, which is like, Hey, you don't have to worry about walking into the store and pacing up and down the aisles for 30 minutes, like feeling like an idiot. Cause you don't know what to pick out. We're going to tell you all that stuff for, uh, for you. Zach, is, is that right?
2: Yeah. We like to simplify the wine buying process, uh, enabling wine consumers to shop with confidence and minimizing the time and anxiety associated with shopping for premium wine, uh, helping to pe- people select a special occasion wine that's really priced for any occasion. That's what I like to say.
0: So so a question about the the, the Globe article for you guys. So, like if you if you were launching a, a new business today and someone came up to you and you said, hey guys, um, you know, what are the two or three things that I need to do to, to, to really launch this thing from a marketing perspective? Like would you push them to try to, to, try to get some press? Like what would you tell them?
1: Well, you know, you, you want to get press when you're ready for it. And, and first of all, you know, your infrastructure is ready for the potential sales, but also you got to make sure your product is 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 ready for that market because you know press can go be positive or negative. Uh, so you know really you, you you need to make sure that you know whatever before you go for that big Boston Globe hit that your company infrastructure and product is ready for it.
0: What's the what's the biggest thing that's changed uh, since 2009? You know, you start off as a as a small business and, you know, all of a sudden you're growing like crazy and you're trying to scale the company. Like, is it hard to maintain that same, um, you know, whether it's your guys attention to detail or, you know, just the, the company as a brand? Like, is that harder to maintain as you keep growing?
1: Well, you know, I'll talk about the business side of things. You know, one thing is nice that I'm actually getting a salary now. In 2009, I wasn't. (laughs) Uh, uh, But, but yeah, there's definitely. You know, sometimes I miss those days because we were on the street selling every day and talking to our customers and learning what their needs were and trying to react uh, uh, faster to to their needs than all of our competitors. But, you know, now we we have 45 employees. We're we're in we're now in 14 uh, markets and. It's, it's more about steering in a whole organization than just trying to sell wine and market wine so you know what 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 you know worries me about growth sometimes is you know we gotta you know you don't you know, keep growing without losing what made us great in the first place which was you know keeping our ear to the ground and uh valuing each and every consumer and maintaining quality product in the bottle and uh and you know so you know you know what we try to do is we try to Grow just as fast as our infrastructure and our, you know, quality of good wine allows us to. So, yeah, so you know, how, how
0: do you how do you think about like continued growth? Like one of the things that that's challenging is like as you start to become a bigger company, you get weighed down by the law of large numbers. It's harder to grow, you know, these these great charts and great percentages as you grew last month. Like, how do you think about um, continuing to grow each month?
2: I I think you know for me. For me, growth is, amounts to many small changes over a longer period of time. And so if we can, each, each year, each month, each week, you know, measure ourselves appropriately, focus on the things that we think matter most, free ourselves of distractions and hopefully complacency, and you know, focus on the things that we believe matter, you know, if, if we do our jobs and we do our jobs a little bit better and hopefully instill that type of thinking in the organization, we can, we can continue to grow. Um, the quality of the wine, you would think, might not be where it needs to be as we grow, but we still haven't reached the levels of production that you know, high, some highly-rated wines reach. So we still think that there's, a, there's an immense opportunity to grow based on you know, the, the quality of wine that can be produced. For us, it's really about thinking smart about new markets, uh, about potential extensions of the product where we think are, are a smart choice as opposed to a distraction. Um, And then, you know, looking at areas where, you know, we're only in 12 states or 12 markets. We're
1: we're currently only only servicing about 26% of the wine consumption population of the U.S. So there's a, you know, for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs like myself, there's a lot of, uh, uh, it's it's a major opportunity, but also, you know, we have to, you know, be careful not to try to get ahead of ourselves. Right. Do
0: do you want to be this global brand or, or like, I know, um, another beverage example who we're actually going to talk to, uh, later on this podcast is the Alchemist Brewing, the guys that make Hedy Topper, um, uh, which is a great example because, you know, they're, they're small. They don't necessarily want to be the biggest brand in the world. They just want to have raving loyal fans. Like which, which kind of camp do you fall in?
1: Well, we're kind of in between we're, we're, you know, we're trying to maintain, uh, kind of incremental advancements, you know, we're, we're, we're not trying, we're, we haven't launched until this year, we hadn't launched any new markets for three years. Uh, we, you know, we believe it's important to manage growth and so we can nurture and execute all the practices worth scaling. You know, if we keep growing, if you grow too fast, too quickly, uh, you know, you dilute yourself, you dilute all those, uh, practices that got us, got us to, to where we're at. So, uh, we've seen too many companies, uh, in our industry, uh, have a hint of success, go national, dilute their quality, dilute their service, and they're out of business two to three years later. So, you know, we're trying to grow the company profitably. We're we're still uh, we haven't raised money since two thousand and eleven, I believe. Uh, we we're bankable now, um, and and doing that, you know, growing 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 uh, su- sustainable growth has allowed me to maintain a. a, a, a a majority of the company and also to uh, become bankable so we don't have to keep going uh, and selling equity in order to um, uh, fund fund capital growth. Right. So, uh, you know, really we're about sustained profitable growth.
0: So, uh, Kevin, you, you started to talk about this earlier when you, when you were kind of rewinding back and talking about the beginning of the company, but um, a lot of our audience for this podcast is executives, and one of the things that we hear a lot is people – You know, they're like, it's awesome to hear about growth, but we really like hearing the stories about what people learn from failure. And I was going to ask you that anyway, but you mentioned um, some of the lessons you learned from one of your first businesses. I'd love to hear a couple of those things and and how they played into, you know, this time around with the new business, what you learned.
1: Well, I won't go into the exact details of my failures, but I'll tell you what I learned.
0: (laughs) You're a smart Uh, smart man.
1: uh, We'd have to take about an hour of this podcast. But, you know, I think that, you know, failures, you know, uh, You know, entrepreneurs should get used to failures, just like scientists scientists do. You know, multiple it's part of the process of learning and you know how to fine tune the business you're in and to uh, stay objective. So, um, you know what I you know the two the two brands that I launched and and really early in the company, the the mojito brand and the kudeta brand. What I really learned was not just that on the branding and marketing side, it was more on the business side what I learned. You know, because when I first started the business. I, I put the, you you get, you get kind of caught up into putting together your private placement memorandum and your business plan and, and you got to start thinking exit and business you know what your, what, what your return on your investors would be and, and, and doing that in that process you start to look at these numbers like okay, I'm going to sell this business for X this is the, the uh, you know free cash flow return 10 years out, that kind of thing. And I think you get caught up and I think that one of the lessons that I learned early on from, from these failures is you know be passionate about what you do and and you know don't build a company for an exit because if you're building a company for an exit it means you're not passionate about what you're doing and as long as you know you 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 put everything you have into your business and you try to build a sustainable company with enduring brands that can endure time and 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 bad and good economies you're doing the right thing so you know what i did wrong back in uh, 2007 was getting caught up a little too much in the uh, uh, you know the raising of money and, and providing value to my investors and started thinking I was building a brand for exit which I think is exact in our industry anyways is exact wrong thing to do is to, it, it, the, the most important thing is to build a sustainable business and brands before you try to even start thinking about exits or talking about exits or how much the company's worth how, how
0: long did it take you to come up with this idea? Is this something that you you realized, like just being in the industry, that there was an opportunity to buy up all this wine?
1: Well, it, it was really in the trade journals. Uh, you know, it, in, in that time of year, we were hearing um, stories coming out of California that winers were dumping wine uh, down the drain because they just couldn't didn't have storage capacity for the next vintages. Uh, so it was all over the trade journals that there was a surplus of inventory of wine all over the market, and and at that time of the year there was actually just global high yields all over the world. In New Zealand, Italy, there were just high yields plus the economic drop uh, was kind of a perfect um, um, storm for these wineries. And we were in that week we you know you know literally I was cold calling wineries. I would email up to forty wineries a day uh, just right off the Wine Spectator and enthusiast and with Brett's help cuz he was running a store that only sold 90 rated wines so i would go right to his website of wine that he had curated and he had purchased for his store and he would nicely put the website address right on the on the buy link near above the buy link so i would just go to his his website and i would hit clink hit, uh, click on the link and then hit inf, hit contact us and i would have a st- stock email that i would send out to wineries trying to buy surplus inventory of their wines and i'd send out 40 to 50 emails a day I'd probably get responses about five a day, and then every week I'd get about five or six samples, which I would then uh, go and talk to Brett. And you know, he has he, he's he's got the better palate than I do, and he would he would help me review these wines and pick the wines to to purchase. So he, he got involved very early on, and then finally jumped ship and and uh, took a pay cut to come work <laughs> for me. So
0: are, is that is that something that's uh, still scalable today? Are you guys you know tasting all the all the new batches of wine that you're getting?
2: Yeah, we're we're tasting them every week. Uh, I think what's changed is we now have m- more wineries contacting us than uh, than may, perhaps the. I don't want to say the other way around because we still do our share of, of reaching out the wineries we want to work with. But there are many more wineries now approaching us to buy their wine than there was in the beginning. It
0: do do they get any do they get any like press out of that or are you just completely um, rebranding it and they're just the only thing they care about is just being able to sell that wine.
1: Mostly, they just care about being able to sell that wine. Gotcha. They don't want pressed. Yeah. Generally, you know, like Brad said before, they 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 don't want to damage their brand equity of their original brand. Right, uh, right. So, so they a lot of time make us sign a non disclosure agreement.
0: All right. So I, I want to wrap up with uh, with this little thing. So. Um, I think one of the best parts about this show is we have a lot of different entrepreneurs from different industries on there, and we always seem to learn something new. So we had the founder of Harry's on talking about you know the best way to shave. We had the guys from Blue Bottle Coffee on telling us about how to make the best cup of coffee. Um, if our listeners only take away one thing from today, how do they know how to find a good wine? like make people smarter about wine before we wrap up?
2: Oh, my goodness, make people smarter about wine in one sentence I'll do my <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not one sentence. You can have a little more than one sentence. All right.
2: Well, I'll just keep. I'll keep it brief. A lot of questions that I get asked are, "What makes a wine age well?" or "How long will this wine age?" Right. I mean, people are interested in drinking wine mostly now, but they're always curious about how long it will last. And so I have this little uh, saying that that helps me, you know, evaluate a red wine in particular with respect to how long it will age. And so for me, it's fat wines. Fat red wines age well. And fat, the F stands for fruit. The wine's gonna have ample fruit so that it carries over a long period of time. It's gotta have acid. Uh, acid acts as a barrier against oxidation as well as tannin. Tannins are polyphenols in, the, in red wine that come from the skins that you know, give it texture and also an ability to age well. So if you have, if you taste a red wine that's got those three things, fruit, acid, tannin, it's a fat red wine, chances are it's, it's built to last.
0: That's pretty good. And I like the acronym, so easy for us to remember. All right, last, last one because you made me think of it. How long, if I buy a bottle of wine and I open it and I don't finish it, how long do I have to actually drink that before it's going to go bad?
2: It really depends on the wine and the varietal it was made from and who made it. Certain wines like Nebbiolo can last for a couple of days. Pinot Noir, you know, may not last overnight. Uh, so, so you know, if you have a, a way to to remove the the vacuum the air out of the wine, you know, that helps. If you have a little uh, like pump that vacuums out the air, that will extend it for a couple of days. If you ha- if you keep the wine cold, if you keep it in the fridge, um, that will you know be a barrier against oxidation. That will extend the life of a wine a couple of days as well.
0: Awesome. Well, look, if if people, you know, some great uh, lessons for entrepreneurs, but also some some great wine knowledge as well. So guys, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, thank uh, you.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. Make sure you head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there so you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you could go and leave us a quick review. You can also head over to thegrowthshow.com. You'll get a sneak peek at all the upcoming guests. And get exclusive updates about the show. I'm Dave Gerhart, and we'll talk to you again soon.
1: Obviously, just just so you know, it's Kevin Mera, M-E-H-R-A. It's spelled. But it said Mera. Okay. And Brett. And it's just Brett VanKosky.
0: All right, cool. I'll try not to say Mara with too hard of an accent. So. <laughs> <laughs>